Hello, everyone, and welcome to Queens of the Bees, your favorite queer movie and TV podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ, the emotionally enriching, mystical, spiritual guide to the astral plane Pisces. This is my co-host. And I'm Aaron. Who is the fiery, passionate, fiercely independent Aries. Yes. I mean, the last of those, at least, is true, right? <laughs> like, I mean, of the three of them, at least the fiercely independent part is Yeah, correct. yeah, you got me with that one. Yeah. So, I, for once, I actually got one of the aspects of the Aries that Aaron actually exemplifies. He's not a very Aries person, except in <laughs> some other... Well, maybe a little stubborn, because that is the, the trait of the, the, the ram that our, the Aries is. But anyway, we don't need to get too far into the astrology, although we are astrology gays here at Queens of the Bees. At least one of us is. This week, we are going to be talking about A League of Their Own again. But of course, we're not going to be talking about the 90s film. We're going to be talking about the new show from Amazon Prime, which just premiered a few weeks ago, which we thought would make a lovely pairing with the 90s film that we just talked about two weeks ago. We are back after a very short hiatus. We want to apologize to our regular listeners for the little bit of a caesura, if you will, between <laughs> the last episode and this one. But we both had a lot going on. For example, we both saw the play Six yesterday, which is the hit Broadway play. Mm-hmm. Um, I highly recommend it. 10 out of 10. Which is sort of like Hamilton meets like the Tudors, basically. It's yes. about the six wives of Henry VIII, uh, and about their sort of fierce competition with each other to see who um, had the worst of it at Henry's hands. It's a very good play, extremely good music. We saw a very good touring cast in DC. So if you have in the one of the cities where it's touring, I cannot recommend it highly enough for all of my Tudor file friends out there. But to the matter at hand, we want to talk about A League of Their Own, much as I would love to talk about Six. Um, we have work to do, so <laughs> I'll trust Aaron to keep me on task. So, as you might have guessed, A League of Their Own is an adaptation of the original movie, but spread out over eight episodes. Yes. And it's very clear from the beginning this is a very different show than its predecessor. I mean, obviously, it's an homage, and there are sort of allusions and Easter eggs to the original version. But to begin with, since we're talking about this on a queer culture podcast, it is very explicitly queer. Exactly. Very, 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 very queer. <laughs> so just it, like the original. Oh, wait, no, no, very different from the original. Well, yeah, I mean, they're both <laughs> queer, just one of them much more up in your face about it than the other. So in this version, Abby uh, Jacobson, known most, I think, for most people from Broad City, plays Carson Shaw, who ends up becoming the team captain as, as the season goes on. And she in- interacts with a number of various characters, one of whom, the most important of whom, really, is Greta Gill, who is played by the divine Darcy Carden, who everyone probably knows most recently from The Good Place, which Aaron does not like, but we won't get into that. Um, but they also, she also befriends Joe DeLuca, played by Melanie Field, who is Greta's best friend and also arguably the sort of Rosie O'Donnell-esque character. So they fit into the kind of archetypes that we saw with the 90s version, but they're much more queer. Exactly. And so as you'll uh, notice in what TJ said there, uh, these characters are different characters from the original movie. Uh, so if you're looking for sort of a, a more exact remake in the TV series, you're going to miss that right away. And uh, there are some similarities in some of the characters, but they really are distinct from uh, their predecessors in the original movie. Right. And then there's two. Um, so that's one half of the story. And then there's the other half, which I want to maybe we can sort of start here and how the, from the beginning there seems to be two different shows 
contained within this one. Oh, oh wait, that was one show that we were watching. It I thought was it was one, two different ones. It that... was one show. <laughs> because on the other hand, obviously, with of some exceptions, most of the players on the team, which are still the Rockford Peaches, are white. With there's a cute, there are a couple of Hispanic characters. There's mm-hmm. um, our Latino Latina characters. Um, they're from Cuba, so you know that's an interesting subplot which we'll get into. But there's also two very important black characters, one of whom is Max, uh, played by Shantae Adams, who is a fierce pitcher and wants to play for the Peaches but can't, obviously. And then there's her best friend, Clance Morgan, played by um, Gemisola Ikumelo, and I'm hoping those pronouncing those properly. To my mind, they're two fabulous characters, and I love them both. I love Max and Clance. I love their friendship. I love how they're basically like... <laughs> A Viola Davis slash Taraji B. Henson and an <laughs> Octavia Spencer. Like, that's kind of the, the model that we're looking at. If you're looking at, like, the help or hidden figures. They're great. Fantastic. And I, I think that both sides of the show work very well. I'm not sure they always work very well together. Because there are some moments where Max meets up with um, Abby Jacobson's character, um, with Carson. But they're few and far between and it feels like they're just trying to force these two halves together, which I mean, I understand, you know, but I'm just, and I understand why you can't make a league of their own in 2022 without including people of color. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, th- so I don't know that there's any way I can envision the show doing this any differently than it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what you just brought up is uh, one of the reasons why, despite how much I enjoyed watching the show, I kind of wondered why it existed as a remake of the movie A League of Their Own. Like you said, trying to tell this story right now without dealing with the race in the way that, you know, a contemporary audience is going to expect. Uh, trying to do that forces these two separate storylines. Because as you said, TJ, it, it makes a lot of sense that uh, the the team would not be integrated. This, You know, the real life league on which it was based wasn't. Uh, Major League Baseball had not integrated at the time that this is set. Sports were still segregated. Uh, there's, you know, the brief indication of that segregation in the movie. And we talked about this in our podcast about the movie, how there's this one scene with a black woman who sort of throws a stray ball back to the women on the team. And that's sort of the movie's one acknowledgement in 1992 about the problem of race and segregation. Uh, if I recall reading correctly about that, uh, the woman who played the part in the movie actually auditioned to be in the movie and was told, you know, well, the the team is going to be all white, so we don't have room for a black actress to be on the team. Uh, But they were so impressed with her that they wrote in the scene with her recovering the ball and and throwing it back to the women on the team. You know, I think that for today, one thing that, that I'm still sort of ambivalent about is how we dealt with that segregation. It's like we didn't want to sort of, it almost feels like at times the series didn't really want to face up Mm. to the reality that it was going to simply be a hard no on racial inclusion. And so they created a story that kind of drags us along. Uh, But it it felt for me kind of like a setup because I was like, well, on the one hand, as I'm going through episode by episode, if they decide to let Max on to the peaches, then they're sort of violating the sort of the truth that the series had actually had or that the movie had about race relations in the 40s. Uh, but at the same time, if they just sort of acknowledge that it's not going to happen, the team's not going to integrate, then there's not much left to do <laughs> with the black character. And so, which is why I think it felt like two different stories with the black characters versus the white characters. Because 
they basically had to do a will they won't they mm-hmm. kind of thing with including Max on the team, but we knew that they kind of would have to say they won't. <laughs> right. Because otherwise then we've blown up the reality of all of the kinds of exclusion and injustice that the show wants to make a point about. Right. And I mean, it's not as if this show is always the best at not, at avoiding anachronism. Like, I think that's one of the things that we responded very differently to when we first started watching the film. I was actually, or series, sorry. I was actually kind of concerned that you might not actually want to finish it because I know that that can be very jarring for you. So maybe we could talk a little bit about anachronism since that Mm -hmm. seems like a natural segue. Um, so one of the major ways, and I think part of this may have to do with just Abby Jacobson's sort of star persona. Like, she's just so thoroughly modern, mm-hmm. and she looks and moves and acts so thoroughly modern that it's hard to see her as being authentically 1940s. Yeah, exactly, and the, the specific way in which uh, Abby Jacobson's performance has kind of come off as is, is modern to me is that she does a really wonderful you know, performance of sort of you know, quirky, awkward, anxious, nervous, almost frantic, but not, but still restrained kind of like energy that is now very, very common in, in comedy. You know, that's kind of, it's almost the default way to kind of be funny and weird a little bit is to have a character that's sort of nervously awkward. But the way that it's done in A League of Their Own, and it's not just for Carson, it's for a lot of the characters too. They kind of perform instead of a more sort of mid-century kind of, you know, I'm not quite sure what how to behave or I'm not quite sure how to respond in the situation. They do it like the modern-day version mm-hmm. that to me feels like in the past it would have been taken as someone having a fit <laughs> as opposed to someone just being sort of nervously awkward. Right. No, and I think that there's something to that, and I think that's it's true of the central trio, white trio. I think that in some ways... At most of the point, like Clance and Max feel more authentic to the period than the white characters do. Well, they feel different for me, but in different re- for yes. different reasons. Okay, <laughs> well, we can get into that maybe in a moment. But I do agree with you that there is something very 21st century about the central trio of Joe, Greta, and Carson um, that can be... It takes some getting used to, and I think that it helps explain sort of the critical consensus, which is that the show as a whole flirts with anachronism in a way that we didn't see with the 90s version, which was, I think, much more, in in the tradition of 90s cinema, more generally nostalgic and, like, mm-hmm. explicitly nostalgic. Like, it really wants to immerse you in the milieu, of the feeling of being in the 40s. And I think does it because that's what it wants. Yeah. Whereas I'm not sure that that's what a league of their own wants, except that it does sometimes. Like yeah. it does in the music choices sometimes, in the clothes, which the fashion is great in this show. Yeah. So yeah. some things strike you as being authentic, but others feel jarringly not so. Yeah, and that's the thing that makes it confusing for me because in terms of like the production design, you know, as far as I know, and I'm hardly an expert on fashions and designs from the 40s, but it, you know, the TV series kind of reminded me of the movies in terms of how it presented those kinds of things. The look seems to be very period appropriate. And for me, that's the part that's confusing because that's the thing that's actually more challenging, more difficult, and more expensive for a show to get right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's hard to make the present look like the past. you got to throw a lot of resources, you know, at a show to be able to go and find or design everything that the audience is going to see so that it looks like stuff that we no longer have anymore. Right. 
No, the thing that should be simpler and easier to replicate is certain sort of modes of performance and the way people talk. That doesn't actually cost anything. But that's where I feel like the show continually sort of kept forgetting that it was a period piece. Right. So can you speak a little bit then about how you see Max and Clance as being equally anachronistic, but in a different way? Okay, nice. So, uh, well, one thing that I'll say about all the characters is just their dialogue. At times they all is... sort of, they all use very, very modern day expressions and vocal patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than, and I'm not saying that everybody needs to sound like that fake transatlantic accent uh, for movies from back in the day, because that's not real. But... You know, the number of characters that sound like late 70s through the 80s Valley Girl, Mm -hmm. you know, saying like all the time, like that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. really stood out. And that was true for all the characters across uh, the series. But for Max and Clance in particular, the way that they talked about uh, various issues that they were facing uh, seemed to be a bit more modern. I was practically expecting him to just sort of throw out words like intersectionality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not that those concepts weren't around. Obviously, those concepts have existed forever and people have been aware of them. But the kind of language that we now use to describe them didn't exist back then. And, you know, Max does it sometimes, but Clance really, really, really does that uh, when she's talking about, you know, the comic books, especially when she's arguing with the little kids, which is always funny every time. Clance, this grown woman, gets into these really serious debates about comic books with, with the kids who live near her. Who, what are they, about eight years old? Yeah. <laughs> you know, one of the funny running gags that I liked. But every time those happened, it seemed strange to me. Not to mention there's a, a moment when Clance and uh, and uh, Max are staying over, uh, spending the night together, and Max or Clance says, I want to be the, the big spoon, and it's like, mm-hmm. I'm almost 100% sure that expression did not exist yeah. in the 40s. I'm yeah. almost 100% sure. And it's... I I found that I got more used to it after the first episode. Like you sort of just settle into the show's like own strange engagement with temporality. Like I think once you just sort of accept that the two things, these two sort of temporal registers are in competition with each other, you kind of just go with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you're going to watch the film, the show, you sort of have to have that mentality because otherwise if you're looking for a straight up period piece or like, you know, I don't know, like Downton Abbey or something like that, you're not going to get it in this show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, what you're saying reminded me, though, of some some of the criticism of the show that I read uh, just as we were watching through the series. And a couple of pieces sort of summed up kind of what I had been thinking about, why it bothered me so much that that anachronism is there. Uh, because one, that sort of thing tends to just bother me anyway, but I can usually get past it. Uh, <clears throat> but for A League of Their Own, one thing that did bother me about you know, the dialogue seeming a bit too modern and some of the performance seeming a bit too modern is that because the show wants us to think about, you know, sort of the the exclusion uh, that LGBTQ people would have been facing, you know, having to sort of live, you know, in the shadows. And of course, the unequal race relations that the show delves into. The thing about having the women behave in ways and speak in ways that felt more modern is that it almost, for me, uh, kind of lowers the stakes of what they're mm. facing. It's like, well, if they can talk and act like modern day women, what's the big deal? Why don't they just sort of do that? Right. Yes, I agree with you and I, to, to a degree. I read it somewhat differently in the sense that I read the show as being a sort of, how do I want to put this? Like a queer utopian sensibility. Like mm-hmm. it wants to create this world or to envision 
a past that is much more queer friendly than it actually, or not not that the past was more queer friendly, but it, that queer people had more agency, I suppose, than what they may have had in reality. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's what I think the show is aiming for, that I think it doesn't always land, precisely because I think that working against that is that sense that the stakes are lower. Mm-hmm. And though I, so I, I think that those are two, again, impulses within the show itself that are sometimes in productive tension, but are sometimes in not-so-productive tension. Yeah. And so, you know, I do think that, in that sense, there is a, a lot of profound, like, utopian sensibility in the show that I found resonant, but mostly because I'm a very utopian kind of person. Like, I'm always sort of... <laughs> Never living in the present, as it were. So maybe that's why it didn't bother me quite as much as it bothered you. Mm-hmm. It could be. And also one thing about what you were saying before about, you know, the team uh, sort of having folks on it uh, and being sort of mostly white. Uh, for the era, the team, uh, the Peaches, the, the main team that we see in the series, would have been sort of all white with its composition in the series. Uh, just pointing out that you mentioned that there are characters who were uh, Jewish uh, oh, that's but, true, yeah. but would have been considered white. And there are two characters who are Latino, one's Mexican and one is Cuban, uh, but would have been considered white. Cuban, the Cuban character would have been considered white uh, for, in American in the 40s, just anyway. And the Mexican character, uh, Lupe, <laughs> was sort of whitewashed in the show. <laughs> they kept referring to her as being Spanish as part of the sort of in-universe promotion of the team uh, because she's actually of Mexican descent. Uh, but they figured Spanish would be more acceptable to the in-universe audience. So that's how they referred to her and sort of made her fit into a white paradigm. Right. And I mean, I have to say that I love that character. I love Lupe. Like... Mm-hmm. Because she's one of the, the the queer characters, and she's that kind of quasi androgynous slash masculine lesbian that I would have totally been into as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, so just putting that out there, not sure what to do with it, but I'm just <laughs> saying that I have those tendencies. So I found that character very appealing for that reason. Mm-hmm. Now I I will say that like I did find the sort of way that the show deals with queer romance kind of moving, particularly since Carson, who's our point of identification to some degree, because um, Abby Jacobson also helped co- helped create the series. Like, her gradual sexual awakening comes at the hands of Greta, Darcy... I mean, who, well, first of all, who would not fall in love with Darcy Carton? That's <laughs> what I would like to know. Like, the woman is just a simple statue of beauty. But, it, you know, all of the characters, with some exceptions, the main ones anyway, are queer in some way, except for Clance. But even Max, you know we learn as having an affair with the preacher's wife of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, but as the show goes on and we learn a little bit more about these characters and about the milia, I think that it slowly finds its footing. And I think I, not only do I sort of forget about the anachronism, I think it also gets a little closer to the sense of stakes that you identify. Mm-hmm. Like for one thing, there's that scene half about halfway through the show where Carson meets up with Lupe and one of the other team members at a gay bar, mm-hmm. which is owned and run by, wait for it, Rosie O'Donnell, who you may recall was <laughs> well, from... The, the character. The character. Wait, right. Not, not the Rosie O'Donnell person. <laughs> that is owned by a character played by Rosie O'Donnell, who you recall was in the original movie. Uh, which I thought was a nice little homage. And and Rosie's character is really interesting because they are also... She is also living her life as authentically as possible 
in the very hostile world of the 1940s, mm-hmm. where gender and sexuality are still understood to be mapped onto one another so that one's external presentation says who you sleep with, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the way that gender kind of works in the pre-war period and through the war until afterward, when it when it's sort of revealed that people are much more complicated, mm-hmm. and that's very threatening. So th- I think that that, for me, that moment in the gay bar where we see this kind of subaltern space where people are actually able to live authentically as I think really well captures the milieu of the war years in the, like on the home front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that scene also, I think is particularly powerful, not just because it shows us that, you know, and it shows us that view of life that some of us may not even be familiar with because it hasn't been sort of represented in a ton of media. Uh, but I think what also makes it so powerful is that that scene reveals first through uh, uh, Rosie's character talking about sort of the dangers mm-hmm. uh, of living life in a way that's more authentic and a bit more open because you're always sort of under the threat of it all being sort of taken down, which of course then happens, <laughs> you know, in the episode, you know, the bar gets raided. And, you know, all the bad things that you can imagine, the violence from the police, we get we get some of that in the show. Uh, and it, it also having sort of big ramifications for the team, mm-hmm. uh, because as T.G. pointed out, so many of the women on the team are queer in some way or another that, of course, you know, this, you know, place where, you know, we saw two characters sort of go on a date. But of course, since it ends up involving so many members of the team, it ends up having to have an impact mm-hmm. on the team at large. Right. And I mean, I, I liked the way that Rosie's character speaks about, you know, living life with their wife. But it's interesting because, you know, at this point, Rosie's character is obviously the butch. Like, we're dealing with sort of the butch femme era of, like, lesbian identity, which doesn't always map explicitly onto the baseball team because like Carson is kind of femme but so is Greta and Joe who is you know the sort of Rosie O'Donnell-esque character is not femme but Lupe is also not femme so like there's, there's a really interesting I guess maybe what I'm getting at is we can see in the team the sort of shifting sense of what lesbian identity can look like that takes place in the post-war era mm-hmm. like we see the team as sort of this I don't want to use, I'll, I hesitate to use this, but I'll use it in a Petri dish of like lesbian identity. Mm-hmm. Like where we're seeing this change that's being wrought by the war itself, which obviously has ramifications both on the home front, but also because the war exposed many people to other queer people. Like yep. that's one of its greatest impacts as far as like gender and sexual ideology is that a lot of queer people met queer people for the first time ever mm-hmm. in the army. But as this show demonstrates, also among team like uh, on the baseball teams obviously yeah now one thing that also stood out to me about the choice to make so many of the women queer uh on the team is that a couple of things ended up happening that i don't i don't know how intentional these things were but they did bring up things that made me kind of go hmm a little bit made you go what again hmm (laughs) uh one is when you're talking about that sort of the butch femme aesthetic uh, that we see sort of on display with the various women. One thing that the show did was that on the team, a lot of the women who do sort of come across as a bit more sort of butch or, you know, a bit more tough to use a more, another old fashioned term, a bit more tomboyish, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, for the women on the team who fit that paradigm, they're all coded in the show at, or explicitly defined in the show as being queer. Right. 
Right, because there's both... Obviously, there's Lupe, who I've already referred mm-hmm. to. But then there's also um, Jess McCready, who's played by Kelly McCormick. Also, mm-hmm. the sort of other... Very clearly coded as, mm-hmm. as queer. Like, they're very... All iterations of, like, Joe from the original yes. film. Yeah. Um, except without the straight marriage to solidify their heterosexual bona fides. Exactly. And one of the things that I thought was sort of an unfortunate implication of making that choice was that they're, without the inclusion of any straight women who were also a bit sort of less traditionally feminine mm. it sort of you know unintentionally fell into this idea that you know you had to if that if you were outwardly not normatively feminine then you must be queer right <laughs> and i don't know if the show intended to do that but it kind of fell right into that right line which the movie avoided by having some of the characters who came across as a bit more tomboyish be straight right and not just in a marriage but right. have sexual feelings but actually just be straight <laughs> but they don't perform traditional womanhood <laughs> right well i mean i mean to flip that over a little bit i mean greta's not mask like we're bush yeah, yeah that's not what i'm saying sure okay but- yeah I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying that <laughs> only butch women <laughs> would be oh, you're, but you're saying that in this show can unintentionally suggest that all butch women yeah, are yeah, lesbian exactly not that all lesbians are butch women. exactly i see Okay, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, I think that there's... That is... Do you think that's a problem? I guess what I, I would ask, is that a problem, per se? It's just one of the weird ways in which I think the more sort of modern show actually ended up feeling, to me, just slightly more outdated than the older movie did. Mm. Because the movie didn't make what I consider to be a little bit of a mistake there. The movie actually didn't do that. Mm, right. It actually was a bit of a head in, in its thinking. In, Except, of course, there way. were no actual queer characters involved. Yeah. Uh, but, but we know which ones were. You know? Right, well, <laughs> yes, but even though, but that's the, I think that that's what you're, what you're articulating is mm. one of the sort of, I don't know if I, if I want to say dangers, but one of the risks involved in sort of explicit, rendering the implicit explicit, like mm-hmm. there, it comes with its own share of minefields. Exactly. Like when it comes to how you, in trying to redress the perceived shortcomings of an earlier version of this story, do you end up reiterating or reifying other systems Mm -hmm. in the process? Yeah, and I think that that's probably what happened in this case. The other thing, just about the choice to make so many of the women on the team explicitly queer, again, I'm going to bring up the this idea about straight women again is like straight women also play sports right? <laughs> as something that I think that again, in the, des- in the desire to explore these kinds of stories that would, ha- would have had to have been left out of the movie when it was made that as a desire to explore so much of that ended up again, creating the, or reinvigorating the stereotype that if you're a woman who does sports, you must be gay. You're a big lesbian. <laughs> exactly. And I was actually talking about that with uh, a woman that I know who's never been on the podcast. Maybe I'll get her to join sometime. But we were just talking about the series, and that's the first thing that she brought up. Mm. You know, that she was like, that she liked the show, but she it just kind of reminded her of when she was younger and playing sports and having to fight that stereotype right. as a straight woman who was athletic. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, having to always kind of fight against that idea that all the women athletes were gay. <laughs> Interesting. Well, yeah, I can, I can I can see that being a potential issue because you're. It would have been different if, say, Clance had also been a baseball player, but she's clearly not. Like mm-hmm. she, you know, it's and Max is so clearly, um, you know, queer. But I, I want to talk for a minute then about 
Clint, about Max and Carson, who are sort of our two sort of viewpoint characters. Because I think that what's fascinating about them, and I think one of the things that I appreciated about the show, is that it shows their sort of struggle with their identity and the sense that the existing categories that that are that are sort of like in the culture to help them make sense of who they are don't actually work that well for them. And I'm thinking of Max's conversation in particular with her uncle, Bert, who was born female but lives as a man. So it, I think in our modern parlance would be trans. Like, mm-hmm. or, But maybe, no, I, it's hard to say because it doesn't seem like Bert themselves is that invested in their own... like. Yeah, but there does seem to be some investment. I mean, there's a pretty consistent right. commitment to, you know, wearing quote-unquote men's clothes right. and all that Living kind of at, stuff. Like, refers to their partner, his partner as the, his wife. Like, mm-hmm. So there is a sense that, you know... Which I, I that I found really rich. That whole storyline was really very fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Um, in part because at first it seems like that's going to be the outlet for Max to get away from the sort of the tyranny of her mother who wants her to live a nor- quote unquote normal life, living, uh, running this, helping to run the salon. And it, her mother clearly recognizes that she'll be in the parlance at the time an invert mm-hmm. um which i found hilarious but also accurate i mean that is yeah. the sort of like how people would have referred to it that, that that's the term yeah yes. so <laughs> I, I found that to be a, a nice touch but it quickly becomes clear to max that max is not trans like max is a les well arguably a lesbian but that's part of what's interesting is their her struggle to figure out what she is mm-hmm. and how she defines herself and how she wants to live her life, mm-hmm. and how that intersects with obviously what's going on in terms of the baseball plot. Yeah, and also I really like how that interaction with uh, Birdie, uh, and then of course with Max as uh, Birdie's niece, sort of trying to walk through some of this identity stuff. How it's such a nice juxtaposition against Rosie O'Donnell's character, mm-hmm. who's you know, who of all, of course, is also the sort of masculine presenting, wearing a suit, you know, type you know, kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, what I love about that is that we have in the character of Birdie, someone where we really talk about, sort of to use more modern language, more trans issues. <laughs> but we have someone who has a very similar self-presentation who isn't presented as explicitly as an invert, to use the old term, right. or to use more modern-day understandings from someone who's more trans, but rather butch. Right. And I kind of like how yeah. there is that sort of difference there despite the apparent similarities. Yep. That's something I think the show got right. Yep. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's a really good point. I think that the, the juxtaposition of Rosie's character with Birdie is a really important one. And, and highlighting how this really is a moment of flux in terms of like g- understandings of gender and sexuality in America more generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that... For Max, that's part of the reason I found Max's sort of journey of self-discovery more affecting and more, like, meaningful. Not I, I like Carson, and I, I, I think Abby Jacobson is, is incredibly charismatic. And, like, I think that I love that character, but I didn't feel as invested because her... She is so divorced from her milieu. Like, she doesn't... Her husband comes back, like, toward the end of the season, but that's sort of a throwaway plot as far as I'm concerned. Like, and her most of her emotional investments are with Greta, and to a lesser extent with Joe with members of the team, which is fine. But I just found Max is so much more moving because it's about mothers, and I'm always partial to those mm-hmm. kinds of stories because, you know, Max struggles with whether her mother accepts her. But also, she has the, her friendship with with uh, Plants, who may not be as accept, as accepting at first of 
her sexuality, but it really, you know, as it becomes more clear that that's who Max is, like Clance mm-hmm. obviously comes around to some degree, mm-hmm. um, which feels a little forced, but also it kind of makes sense as, as, as when it comes to Clance, the character that we've got to know. Mm-hmm. Like it makes sense for her character development that she would eventually be willing to accept Max at least conditionally, because it's never actually explicitly stated that Max is like a lesbian mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or an invert. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but also I think that that's what for me that makes that feel real mm-hmm. is that you you know not I'm gonna say that the show sort of reflects I think what might be someone like more Clance's even opinion more so than Max is that there doesn't necessarily need to even be put a la- a label put onto you know what's going on with Max's journey <laughs> right I think that you know it's more that sort of Clance has just sort of decided whether or not she's going to sort of continue being friends mm-hmm. with this person and if she decides that yes I want to keep the friendship going just like we've always done then you just find a way to accept whatever's happening doesn't right. really matter what it is you just find a way to accept it right and I mean I was really really I, I, I didn't cry very much during the show surprisingly right <laughs> but when I I did actually get choked up when uh, when Max is leaving with the new team like she gets put on onto a, like a black team mm-hmm. um and becomes lovers with the pitcher, not surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Um, when she's parting from Clance, it's really well done. And it's there's this moment when she's like, Clance is like, this isn't your team, I'm your team. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, it was beautiful. I just loved it because it was just such a, a powerful evocation of like female friendship. And I love those moments that we get when we have two women who, you know, one straight, one gay or whatever, you know, can just be friends, like, mm-hmm. without the emotional complications. Like, mm-hmm. that I thought was really extremely evocative and affecting. Right. And I also, for me, that summed up something that I think the show also did well, and that showing that in very interesting ways, we can see sort of, we can see areas of sort of social progress that sort of go beyond our expectations, maybe for the era, associated with the black characters, uh, because that to me that to me seems historically honest <laughs> uh, for some of the reasons that are pointed out in the show itself. Like we talked about how on the black uh, baseball team, of course it's a men's baseball team, but ultimately they accept Max, where she had been trying first to get with the Peaches and she tried to get on to the men's baseball team where she had started working uh, because she took up a job so she could try to get onto that team mm-hmm. and that never worked. But the black team, accepted her and it wasn't even that big of a deal or that big of a surprise that uh they accepted her because they already had a black woman on that team and to me that's kind of shows the reality that when it comes to sort of maintaining these sort of you know strict positions in society that are based on things like gender ideology sexual identity all that kind of stuff there's always been a lot more play Mm. in communities of color particularly for black people uh and for one reason in particular and that's when you've got other shit to deal with as a community, you can't always afford the luxury of being strictly bigoted. Right. Sometimes just for the sake of the community's survival, you've got to be willing to accept things that you might not otherwise accept. Right. And I think that nothing solidifies that for me more than like uh, Max's conversation, pretty much her last conversation with her mother. Um, Cause throughout this, you know, her mother has been sort of positioned as a, not as a bigot exactly, but it's not particularly accepting of Birdie um, and, not, and also not particularly accepting of Max's desire to play baseball, which is sort of symptomatic of mm-hmm. Max's larger like in, inability or refusal to obey gender rules. But it's not as it, as it turns out because, because the mother feels any sort of innate 
revulsion for homosexuality per se. It's because she understands in a way that older people often do that, you know, what would help Max live a fulfilling life writ large is if she had an actual, like, as, as a black woman in America, is if she has a business of her own. Exactly. Which is why she wants her to take over the shop for because she knows that that's the kind of stability that if, in fact, Max is a lesbian, which she seems to know, as mothers do, then she's going to have a hard time, but she will have a less hard time of it mm-hmm. if she would just take up the job that she's offering her. In the same way, she has this very powerful conversation with Birdie where it's revealed subsequently that she's resentful of Birdie, not because Birdie doesn't... is. Uh, trans or however we might identify them but because they left mm-hmm. uh, because he left them left her behind to take care of her family mm-hmm. which of course then birdie's like i had to leave because there was no other option i couldn't just do what you wanted to do me to do which was to give up part of myself to go along to get along mm-hmm. and i thought that was a really important conversation those three sort of conversations two conversations are really important because they sort of reveal as you were just saying like mm-hmm. the difficulty of navigating the world as a double or triple subaltern. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And I love that in those stories, you know, there's always, there's also the reminder because this series is so full of sort of, you know, sort of queer coming out narratives and sort of queer self-acceptance and figuring out one's queer journey. This series is so full of that. Those stories are the reminder that, that are as important as our queer journeys are they're never the only thing that matters. Right. There's always all of the other stuff of life that isn't just about us being queer that we also have to contend with as well. And I love that between Birdie and Tony, uh, Max's mom, uh, when they talk about, you know, their various takes on sort of what happened with their family and all that kind of stuff. You know, as you know, as a fellow queer person, it's easy for me to just to already feel like I'm kind of on this on team Birdie mm-hmm. <laughs> with this, but. You know, when I was listening to Tony talk about this kind of stuff, I was kind of like, it also reminded me of stuff in my own family where, you know, when you're, if you decide to leave, that makes a huge difference on everyone else who's left. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, and even when you're leaving for your own survival, you're doing it because it's super important. You don't see a way for it any other way. That doesn't undo the fact that leaving has huge implications. Right. It just means that both things are true at the same time. Right. And so, so, I mean, I think it's one of the strengths of this show is that it avoids moral certainties like or moral like the easy moral outs which a, a less sophisticated show would have taken but instead sort of helps us to understand the very complicated moral calculus that people have to go through when they navigate a space of a, homof- a culture that is just so virulently and essentially homophobic like mm-hmm. i think that that's one thing that is hard for us in the 21st century to really wrap our heads around is just how much homophobia was sort of baked into almost every person's like mental apparatus mm-hmm. including queer people mm-hmm. like and, that's i think a really important thing the show does help us understand and i think that the thing that's for, that makes it even more difficult for a contemporary audience to understand is that it's a combination of the kind of sort of baked in homophobia that you're talking about sort of balanced with for people who don't who aren't steeped in that kind of way of thinking what you're facing with a lot of those folks is just complete and utter ignorance. Mm -hmm. Like they just, they don't even know what a homosexual is. Right. (laughs) And so even when you're not dealing with out and out discrimination or, you know, discriminatory attitudes, it's just people not even knowing anything about what your experience might be like. Right. Which is why, you know, I think Carson's experience is so fascinating in that regard because she's coming from Idaho, not a farm girl, as she Mm -hmm. repeatedly points out. Um, But she comes from Idaho, you know, the backwoods of nowhere. Um, 
and but very quickly like Retta sort of helps her to make herself make her journey of self-discovery but what interests me about Carson is that she doesn't fit or Greta for that matter they both seem more on the spectrum of sexuality than explicitly lesbian or you know or Mm -hmm. straight like they seem bi perhaps or even pan like there's an interesting sort of ambiguity about their own identity that I think that storyline really helps us to get around because it seems to me that Carson does love her husband like she and feels some at least measure of desire for him in a way that max does not like max doesn't have any desire for men at all (laughs) that much is very clear but carson seems a little her story seems a little more like or her identity seems a little more in flux than Mm -hmm. max's does and for me it's like it's even that her her story uh carson's story makes me think even more sort of deeply about what identity even means mm-hmm, in this way. Mm-hmm. Because I'm also thinking about, given the cultural milieu that uh, Carson comes from, we we also have to think about the, the extent to which pre-Greta, she wouldn't necessarily know what her options even right. were in terms of expressing any feelings that might be bubbling up inside of her. Right. That's the thing what I was saying about sort of the built-in level of ignorance that's so different. Mm-hmm. when we're looking at the past, is that it's not just a matter of deciding whether or not it's true that I'm gay. Figuring out that that's even a thing that one can be right. is something that I think for modern day folks, that step is the one that's harder for us to envision. Right. Which is why baseball, why it's so important that it's baseball that renders this necessary, uh, renders this possible because mm-hmm. of the very act of, as was clear in the 90s movie too, like the very act of playing sports is transgressive because you're leaving behind the sort of gender normality that we that is expected of women mm-hmm. um and so it opens up possibilities not just in terms of one's own physical agency but one's sexual agency and greta mm-hmm. has already encountered this because she's a big city girl like she's already had these moments of awakening and is very comfortable sort of moving between men and women like she mm-hmm. seems very comfortable she's kind of like the madonna character like she's mm-hmm. just kind of She'll sleep with whoever she wants to. Yeah. And, I, and if I recall correctly, even when they we have them doing their little swing dancing scene, just like from the movie, I think Red actually does some of the same choreography. I think so. That Madonna had in the movie. So there is that sense that she's already sort of experienced the burgeoning, like, urban queer identity. Like, mm-hmm. that is made, or made that the kind of identity that is rendered possible in urban spaces, which is why she has to be the agent of change for Carson, because Carson doesn't have that, because mm-hmm. there's no real cities in Idaho. Hey. Certainly not in the 40s. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, part, I, our apologies to anyone in Idaho <laughs> and Boise. Um, yes. Presumably. We, we'll get protests from all those big cities in Idaho. There's Boise. <laughs> Boise is a city. And we said big. <laughs> Ish. But anyway, I had a very good friend in undergrad from Idaho. Anyway, so I think that that's interesting to me. And there is something really satisfying about the sports attitude. Like, I feel like we've talked about everything but the baseball. Yes. <laughs> Which, but that's not to say, that's that's more on our part than the show. Yeah, well, I, it's also on the show. I well, think. I mean, there's only so much you can show. But I will say what I appreciate about the show is it does help us see the pleasure of baseball as a sport. Like, I found myself getting invested in a sports game, which never happens. But as the peaches get to their sort of, they make it to the playoffs, I was like, oh my God, they might actually win. And I was, Aaron can testify to this. I was actually like making sounds of like, ugh. Like, yes. you know, the sort of sounds that men make when they watch sports. Yes, yes, it was quite odd. I, I didn't understand it at first. I nearly called an ambulance. Because <laughs> um, there is something uniquely satisfying about, like, the the sound design of, like, the 
the way that a ball sounds when it or the bat sounds when it hits the ball. Yeah, like, that fake I, sound effect they use in TV it's, shows it's and movies. Yeah. Very satisfying. Like I find it very pleasurable. Um, and so I write this down. I actually may get invested in baseball. I don't know yet. I'm just sort of speculating that that may be a result of having seen this show. I believe it when I see it. No, um, I actually felt like it took way too long for the series to start showing us adequate amounts of baseball. <laughs> like it took several episodes to where I felt like the balance made sense. Okay. Uh, you know, that that's that will go down in history as one of my criticisms <laughs> of the series is that it there's not enough baseball. Oh, well, okay, well... I stand corrected. No, we just we just differ in our opinion on this. Um, but I will say that, you know, as we get toward the conclusion, when it's the sort of the, the big game, when everything's on the line, by this point, Joe has been traded to a different team um, by, the t- by the team chaperone because she was caught at the gay bar and was wounded, beat, basically, by mm-hmm. the cops. Um, and then she's just about to win, and her knee goes out. Mm-hmm. And so... By the rules of baseball, she has to make the home run, or she has to make mm-hmm. it to home base, or she'll forfeit. And then her team, and this is the other part where I got choked up. The team, like Greta and Carson, decide to like lift her up and mm-hmm. help her get around because so, the so, rules so, don't say. So let's let's be a little more clear, just to make sure for our audience who hadn't seen it yet, <laughs> who may not watch. So again, of course, since this is after. Uh... Uh, Joe's been traded to the Blue Sox. Right. So when we say the team, the team he's talking about is the Peaches. So Joe's former team, the team that she's playing against. Right is the team that is involved in the activity that TJ is describing. Right. Yes, which is which flout, which is a nice loophole because the rules state that she ha- can't make it with assistance from her team, mm-hmm. but there's nothing that says the other team, which would be the Peaches, can't help her, mm-hmm. which is lovely. It's a moment of powerful queer female solidarity where the whole, like all the Peaches gather together and help Joe win mm-hmm. in the process, ensuring their own defeat. Mm-hmm. And I just... Thought that was quite well done. And yeah. I just, I, that was a perfect ending. I was just like, that is exactly what I would have wanted to see. Right. It's it, even more satisfying than if the Peaches had actually won. Yeah. And for me, it, it's like, I like the ending, but just because it made, it, it made so much sense to me. One, because there are analogs in women's, in like real life women's sports of that kind of thing happening. When, you know, the first sort of major high profile retirements from the WNBA, you know, there are stories of, you know, rec- people who were setting records for scoring with the opposing team, with the, we're getting near the end of the game, they will step back and let that person you know, just take the shot so that they can have the record <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Like, that's a real-life thing. Also, it just reminds me of sports in general, where uh, for people who aren't big fans of sports, we some, who sometimes forget that the attitude is that they tend to respect good sports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I couldn't picture a team basically not doing what the Peaches did here, where they like it's not like this was a play that had to be that they could sort of defend against. Joe hit the ball out of the park. It's a home run. There's no way for the Peaches to sort of recover the ball, get it in, and get the person tagged out before they score. The ball went out of the <laughs> out of the stadium. They know they lost. I can't imagine a team in that situation wanting to take advantage of a technicality. Right. Like because you know you lost. <laughs> it would be the most hollow victory in the world <laughs> right. to try to win because the person was injured. Like it, that's just strange. It's like I could, like I can't imagine any athletes in any sports that I've ever kept up with not responding the way that the Peaches did in the movie right. or in the TV show. And so that brings us to then to the finale, where I think the show ties things up nicely. Like 
Max has gone off to join the team. Clance, has, as it turns out, is pregnant with her husband who's gone off to war. We almost get a Carson Greta, like, riding off to the sunset together. But then, after making out on the porch, Carson says, I can't. I haven't decided what my life is going to look like, which I thought was lovely. Mm-hmm. Because it works both as a season conclusion, but also as if they don't get a second season, a series conclusion. Like, mm-hmm. I love that it leaves us on this ambiguous note because then her husband comes back. Um, so I think there's a lot of room for development and growth in the second season. But it also works well as its own self-contained thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that that's how a show that's uncertain about its future should land so that it feels satisfying in and of itself. But also, like, it gives us enough to care about that we could come back to jo- rejoin these characters. Yeah. Yeah. The I actually feel like the show is sort of in a weird spot where I, I almost hope it does not come back despite the fact that I very much enjoyed watching it because I don't know a way to come back mm. with these characters. I don't know how we bring back the same set. Now, there are some characters maybe we can bring, but we're going to have to lose some because of this clearly divergent pathways that we had between Carson and the Peaches and Max right. on the other, on the other side. Those stories already felt like two separate stories throughout this series, and then we separate them even more with... Uh, Max going out, you know, to travel around the country playing with the black baseball team and the Peaches season sort of ending and whether or not they'll come back as a team. You know, that's even more separate than what we were set up with when this series began. I really don't know how we sustain those two separate stories in anything for the future. <laughs> well, I, I hope springs eternal for me. I would be more than happy to join these characters again. And I have confidence that they will figure out some way. <laughs> um, and I will say that, you know, I enjoyed many of the side characters that appeared as well. So, I mean, there's plenty of growth for them to give, you know, to give them more time. I appreciate Dale Dickey's character, mm-hmm. the chaperone, who I always love. She is one of the best character actresses working in Hollywood. I don't care who you are. And she, as it turns out, unsurprisingly, is also a lesbian. <laughs> Literally, I was at some point I was just like, is there anyone in this show who is not a lesbian? I, I think about the Golden Girls, like, here is this character, a lesbian. <laughs> here is this character, a lesbian. <laughs> um, and then there's Pat and Kathy. And then Pat and Kathy, but Pat and Kathy, image consultants, were not present so, so far as we know. Um, their mothers might have been, though. <laughs> right. Um but overall, I really did enjoy this show far more than I had expected to. Like, when I went in, I didn't really know what I was going to get. But I'd heard from so many people that I trust online. And what has surprised me about its online following is just, I, mean, I guess it's not surprising, but there are a lot of gay men who love this show. Like, it makes sense to me that gay men would like the original show only because Madonna is in it. But let's be real. Gay men tend to not be all that interested in lesbian dramas. Like, they just aren't, like... And that's a, there's many historical reasons why that's the case, but I've been really pleasantly surprised by how many gay men I follow on social media who really seem invested in this show. And I think that's a, I mean, I really, I don't speak facetiously. I really do think that's a good thing. Well, you know, we, we have always been a fan of our strong female leads. Yes, but <laughs> mostly those were straight women. Like, that, so that's what I'm getting at is that this is kind of like a, a, 
a sign of progress, I think, that gay men are being invested in actual lesbian stories. Mm-hmm. And it also just helps, I think, that the show is just so full of heart. Like, it's a show that really asks you as a viewer to care about these characters, to care about what happens to them. It's a show that wears its heart on its sleeve. It, it's, it puts its toe on the line of schmaltz sometimes, particularly mm-hmm. in the final couple episodes. But as a, you know, as a Pisces, like, just ladle the schmaltz in my mouth just, like, just, just, just drown me in schmaltz i don't care like i will gladly he's take, not kidding i'm please. not kidding just literally drown me in schmaltz um that maybe that's what i should name rename the podcast drown me in schmaltz um but i i do think that you know that's what's refreshing i mean in that sense that's what i think it shares with the 90s version which was also very heartfelt mm-hmm. and very in the way that only 90s cinema could be but i think that that's part of what makes this show refreshing is that it seems of a piece with the television landscape we live in now that is you know we're seeing more shows abandoning the sort of dark cynicism of the mid 2000s to mid 2010s and this new era of like feel good television that there are good things in the world that people do good things like i think that's a valuable part of a television landscape myself Mm -hmm. and one of the things like right at the end of the show that i think falls into that feel good thing is something that you didn't say about dale dickie's character that i thought you were going to say is that uh her character so she's associated with the peaches she's sort of their what what term do they use she's the the, their chaperone that she's just sort of in charge of these women and not just sort of they're watching to make sure they don't get in trouble she's there to enforce Mm -hmm. all kinds of rules from the league because there are all these sort of image rules uh that the women have to sort of maintain because they're under such a spotlight and uh a lot of the stuff that she's there to enforce are you know rules that make them look like ladies mm-hmm. you know and not just in the sense of making them look like ladies as opposed to fallen women <laughs> but that make them look like ladies as, as opposed to a bunch of queers right <laughs> and so she's there to enforce that normativity on them and the league has a rule that the women aren't allowed to appear in public in pants so not only do they have to play baseball wearing those ridiculous skirted outfits. <laughs> they also are expected to wear dresses and skirts as a matter of course when they're out and about just living their lives, not playing baseball. And so there are characters that every time they go out, they wear pants. And so she's like, I have to collect a fine from you uh, because the league says I have to collect a fine every time you break this rule and wear pants. And so she does her job as a good former soldier, as her character is. She follows her orders. Uh, but then at the end, she hands the money back to, was it Jess? Is that the character? That yes. it was? Uh, and says, well, the league said I had to collect the fines. They didn't say what I had to do with them after I collected them. So here you go. Yeah. No, I, I, that's what I mean when I say this show has a heart and it wears it on its sleeve. And I, I love that. I love that moment in particular, but I just love the entire finale, which sort of left us feeling good about the world. And I, I, I appreciate a show that is so explicitly willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's enough for our main discussion. So we'll come back where Aaron actually has a Are You Even Gay For Me? If You Can Believe It. (laughs) All right, well, welcome back. So now comes our favorite part of the show. Are You Even Gay? So I'll let Aaron 
open this up and then I will render myself up for ridicule. Okay, so, uh, you know, people like hearing about your personal life. So you've seen a bunch of shows you mentioned six earlier. Uh, you also uh, saw a production of Wicked recently, right? I did. I was this. I went to see two shows this week. And this one goes out to Bridget. Touring companies, not the actual Broadway show. So Bridget, if you're listening, this one's for you. Miss Pedant. But in any case, I did see Wicked, which I absolutely adored. It, and was, it was a good production. Like, it was it was a very good production, yes. Nice, and I was wondering, and so uh, I guess, how did it compare to, uh, like, when you saw it, like, saw it on Broadway? Like, how did it compare to that? Well, I have to admit that this is the one and only time I've actually seen Wicked on stage. Wait, so this is the first time you've seen a touring cast, right? No, I've never seen it on stage before this at all. Wait, wait, uh, so you, you, you've never seen any production of Wicked until this one. So, like, you didn't see it on... Bro- I don't mean, like, the original cast. I didn't see it. Ever. I have never seen it in any iteration, on stage, fear, full stop, ever, in the history of my life since it's been on the stage in 2003. Wait, I, I, I'm sorry, everyone. I'm, <laughs> I'm not usually left at a loss, but... <laughs> He's just hemming this up to make me feel bad. <laughs> I opened myself up for this. So I, I'm just kidding. You're such, a, you're such a fan. I am a fan of Wicked, but I was very poor, and I have. I mean, I had other opportunities to see it. I mean, you had food, you had a car, you had those things. I know. I am, but deeply, you hadn't seen Wicked. I am deeply shamed to admit that I had not seen it before. But I will say that during this production, if I may seize the conversation for a moment, yeah, the floor well, is yours. <laughs> Because I have long loved Wicked ever since I read the book in 2003 or 4. Well, maybe it's 5. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, in undergrad. And then I discovered the play. And that's when I fell in love with Kristen Chenoweth and Adina Menzel. The one, the one true pairing <laughs> of Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth. And also, I just love the play. Because obviously it's a very queer-oriented play. Both because it's just Broadway, but also the whole story is very queer. Defying Gravity is the queer anthem. Mm-hmm. At fr- queer friendships are often cut in the mold of a Glinda alphabet dynamic. I think I, I said this to the, a friend of mine. I think that all queer relationships, friendships or otherwise, are a Glinda alphabet dynamic. I'm clearly the alphabet and the Aaron <laughs> TJ dynamic. Obvi- <laughs> I mean, sorry, I meant that to flip. I'm clearly the Glinda and the Aaron TJ dynamic. He is very much the alphabet. Yes, without question. I I used to flatter myself to think I was alphabet, but no. <laughs> um, some other friendships, yes, but usually, as you may have guessed from my bubbly demeanor, um, whenever I see people less fortunate than I, and let's face it, who isn't less fortunate than I, <laughs> my tender heart tends to start to bleed. But I don't want to get too far afield. Anyway, I was very emotional after the first act because it's a very good play and it was a very good touring production. And I love that there seems to be a new resurgence of Wicked's popularity. It's been on the show stage almost 20 years, and the show was packed. And I think that that is a huge testament to why this show is so enduringly popular and why queer people in particular feel it's so, it's so resonant with them. Mm-hmm. I'm not buying anything you say in almost 20 years. Well, pardon me. Aaron, but some of us didn't come from a place as socially acceptable as St. Louis, so I haven't always had the opportunities to see it. Mm-hmm. Yes, because it's so easy for folks from St. Louis to see shows on Broadway. Yeah, but you have like actual theater there. Like You could have at least seen a touring cast much I more I saw easily. it on Broadway. He did see it. Not only did he see it on Broadway, he saw it with Shoshona Bean, who succeeded 
Adina Menzel in the role, and mm-hmm. arguably comes closest to capturing mm-hmm. Adina's inimitable presentation. And you know why I went through all that hassle to see the show on Broadway so many years ago? So you because I'm actually gay. So you wouldn't have to hear me harass <laughs> you from not being gay on yes. this podcast? Exactly. I was playing the long game on this one. <laughs> so I've got to ask you, Ugh. in light of this <laughs> nearly 20-year oversight on your part, TJ, so <laughs> are you even gay? Yes, I am still gay. I really... Look... I got teared up and actually was crying during For Good. I think that if nothing qualifies me for being gay, then, then that that's it. Like, that's the thing. I don't know. I say jury's still out. <laughs> anyway, all of which is to say that I really enjoyed seeing Wicked on the first time. It was a very emotional experience after waiting for so long. Um, and I got to see it with my best friend who was there as well. So um, it was... All in all, a joyful experience. He is also the alphabet in our friendship. Cl- <laughs> I am very much the... <laughs> <laughs> the annoying Glinda and our, <laughs> our dynamic. So, yes, I am gay. Yes, I love Wicked. Yes, I will gladly turn this entire podcast into a Wicked's only podcast if I have to. To prove it. <laughs> but anyway, yes, I am gay. So we'll be right back to share our social media channels with all of you. Well, thank you all for joining us for another fabulous episode of Queens of the Bees. If I do say so myself, every episode just gets better and better. Yes, true. It's true. We we love talking about queer culture. We love talking to each other, I guess. Like, this gives us an excuse. Usually we don't even see each other. We just kind of like... I'm like, you know, what are you doing here? Who are you? Yeah, exactly. We're sort of... <laughs> we're those kinds of gays. But we do enjoy bringing our little bit of queerness to all of you. And we thank each and every one of you who has taken the time to rate or review our podcast. Which reminds me, if you haven't done so, but you want to help support us, please consider rating us or reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get them. I don't know if you know this, but it makes it much easier for people to discover us if we have more ratings. So if you have a few moments, you know, just fill that out and, you know, leave a nice thing to say. If you have some constructive criticism forward that to Aaron. I don't deal with that department. Uh, I only deal with praise and good things. Um, very Glinda-esque of me, I must say. So if you have something that you want to suggest, put it CC Aaron on that email. Because I won't read it. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, we do appreciate that. So please, if you have a chance, leave us some commentary. That would be very helpful. Because we do take things seriously here at Queens. We do want to respond to where our listeners are. And so we will do that, hopefully. Um, I'm not even going to bother asking Aaron where you can find him on social media because he's not a ma- he's not a maven of the social media world like I am. No, no, no. Maybe one day I'll get on this MySpace I'm hearing so much about. I'm not sure that most of our listeners even would know what that is. <laughs> well, you see, friends, MySpace was... No, just kidding. I'm not going to go into that <laughs> discourse. But you can follow me on, me personally, I, TJ, on Twitter at TJ West and the number three. You can also find me on Instagram at Thomas West and the number three. You can also check out my newsletter over at Substack titled Omnivorous, where I write about lots of gay things, um, including some of the movies that we review here. And at some point in the not too distant future, you can also check out our new Instagram page when I get that up and running, which I promise will happen at some point, hopefully in the near future. But in the meantime, like I said, check out our my socials. I appreciate all the followers because I love a social media whore 
and I just love attention. So please feel free to follow me there. Mm-hmm. Look at him, people. Look at him. Look at me. Look at, him. look at me. Again, I am Glinda. Like I, I am literally telling you that I am Glinda. Anyway. <laughs> So thank you all once again for tuning in for a fabulous episode of Queens of the Bees. I'm your co-host, TJ. And I'm Aaron. And we'll be right back with you next week. Bip, bip.